welcome to episode number 96 of the Between the Cracks podcast. I am your host, Bill, and with me, as always, is my co-host and newly married, I might add, Chris. Little buddy, how's your first week of married life treating you? That's about the same as any other day, I guess. <laughs> right? What's any different? No, it's it's good. It's uh, it's kind of like a big weight has been lifted, you know. And like the all the build up to the day, and then and then finally when it's over, you're like, well, it could just go back to your life again. Yes. Well, it was a simply lovely day, I must say. <laughs> yes, the weather did cooperate. And uh, you're actually taking off for your honeymoon next week, so it's nice that we were able to actually squeeze this in. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, don't count those! Uh, don't count those eggs yet, Bill. We're not done <laughs> Do yet. not count your eggs until they are hatched. But let's hop right into it. We have no time to spare because uh, I'm out here in the BTCRF. It's very windy. It's very dark, and I'm starting to get a little creeped out because the case that we're going to be covering tonight is uh, very eerie in and of itself. Yes, I don't think we've ever done a case quite as mysterious as this one. I think you're right. I mean, this is as bizarre as it gets. But tonight, we are going to be discussing the mysterious death of 36-year-old Oog de la Plaza. Now, what makes this story so interesting is the fact that it's often referred to as a locked room or a locked door mystery. And for those of you that may not be familiar with that term, it essentially means that it's a crime that's committed in which there's seemingly no possible way for the perpetrator to commit the crime and to evade the authorities. Basically, what we have here is a death of a young man that took place inside of his apartment with both doors locked. So there was no evidence of anybody having been in or attempting to leave this apartment, aside from Oog himself. But as we get into it, we're going to come to the harsh realization that, uh, Chris, there are far more questions than answers, even until this very day. Our story tonight takes place on June 2nd of 2007 in the Hayes Valley section of San Francisco, California. And unfortunately, in the early morning hours of June 2nd, at approximately 8.20 a.m., the authorities found the lifeless body of Hugh de la Plaza inside his apartment at 462 Linden Street. Now, as I said, there's more questions than answers here, and you're going to see why. Because as the paramedics arrive on the scene, they notice blood on the sidewalk, on the stairs leading up to Hugh's apartment, on the railing, on his front door. As the paramedics were able to enter Hugh's apartment... What they found was a horrific scene. Like I said, blood everywhere. They found Oog dead on the floor from the result of three stab wounds. One being in his neck, one being in his abdomen, and one in his chest. But here's the crazy thing. Remember I said this is a locked door mystery, and that is exactly what happened here. The front door was locked, being a padlock of all things. They had to break through that to get in, and then they come to find out that the back door was locked as well. And within the apartment here, upon investigation, they realized that there wasn't really signs of a struggle. And in addition to that, they come to realize that nothing within the apartment was missing. So that kind of rules out robbery right away. 
And another bizarre finding, Chris, is the fact that they found Oog's cell phone right next to his body. But get this, there were no bloody handprints. It seemed like he made no attempt to even call 911. They noted the bloody handprints on the wall. There was blood from one end of the apartment to the other. So it's obvious that Oog was indeed mobile for at least a little bit of time after he was stabbed. But now here's the real kicker, Chris. Out of all the things I mentioned, the door being locked, the fact that nothing was missing, and the fact that he made no attempt to call 911, in addition to all of that, there was no weapon found at the scene. So riddle me this, Chris. We have a locked door, which all the evidence shows that no one entered or exited. We have nothing missing, and we have no weapon. What the hell is going on here? This really just doesn't make any sense at all. And uh, I think to figure this out, I'm going to have to rip a page out of your book, Bill. We're going to have to go backwards to go forwards. <laughs> uh, um, excuse me, Chris? <laughs> oh, you heard me. <laughs> all right. <laughs> then uh, I'm going to follow you, Chris. Uh, let's take a little walk and see what the hell was going on in uh, Oog's life at the time of this tragedy. So Oog was a French-American. He actually had dual citizenship, um, so he had a very heavy French accent still. Both parents still living in France. Oog really did enjoy living in the United States because uh, it actually helped him to woo women a, a little easier because, you know, who doesn't like a French accent? Uh, oui, especially oui. in America. Chris, hold on. I said, oui, oui. <laughs> Bonjour. Um, so, Chris, I said, we oui, we. Oui. Okay, we get it. <laughs> Jesus. Continue, Chris. So, um, he had a pretty good job with, uh, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the company Leapfrog, which is uh, basically like a children's learning, uh, those toys that are like educational. And I believe he actually was recently promoted. And uh, he had, he, you know, he had loads of friends. He was, you know, he was not a shy person. He, uh, liked, you know, to go out from time to time, you know, hang out at clubs, bars, which is actually where he was uh, the night of his death. Yeah, you're exactly right, Chris. Oog loved the nightlife, uh, as so many of his friends have noted. And, uh, he was, uh, known to be quite the ladies' man. Can you blame him? I mean, you got a 36-year-old bachelor with dual French and American citizenship, with an amazing job, a bright future. I mean, so the hell with it. Go out and have some fun. And that's exactly what Oog did <laughs> more than a couple times uh, each week. And as you alluded to, that's kind of where our mystery begins. Because on the night of June 1st of 2007, Oog and a couple of his friends met up at a San Francisco club called Underground SF. From all accounts and... From the pictures that friends took that night, it seemed like Oog was in great spirits. He was sucking down a few drinks, and they said that he was indeed drunk, but there was really nothing out of the ordinary. I mean, generally speaking, if you like going out to nightclubs and hanging out to the wee hours of the morning, alcohol generally does play a role in that kind of lifestyle. And indeed it did. And as I said, his friends said that he was indeed inebriated. And in addition to that, they said that Oog, was kind of looking for love that night, if you catch my drift. 
you are correct. He did say that. And uh, now, as you said before, that he was known uh, for being a ladies' man. He was very active on uh, on like dating sites, and he went on many dates. It seemed like perhaps he was like you had mentioned earlier, just really kind of getting the best out of life. He didn't really want to settle down so much as just kind of have fun. All of his friends said that he basically just loved life. With the way he's living, how could you not? <laughs> but uh, please, Chris, that's neither here nor there. So anyway, uh, now you know they're hanging out at this underground SF. It's about 2 in the morning. Now it's January 2nd of 2007. And Oog decides that, you know what, I'm done for the night. I'm going to start walking home. He makes some plans with friends for the next day. I believe one of his friends uh, said that they had plans to go ride their motorcycles the following morning. Now, Oog leaves the club, and one of the last things that he said was that he was going to go try to find a uh, woman for the night before he made his way home. Whether that was said in jest or not, we don't know, but that is part of... uh, the story here. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. So, Oog starts making his way back to his apartment at 462 Linden Street. As you can imagine, in big cities, especially like San Francisco, they did have a lot of CCTV cameras around the city, but unfortunately, there was really no concrete evidence of Oog walking back to his place. There was one video that showed a shadowy figure walking the route they believed Oog took that night back to his place, but it's very dark, grainy footage and nearly impossible to even make out the shape of the person. But it's very eerie footage because you see this shadowy figure walking past and in a blink of an eye, the figure's gone. And that is all that Oog's family and friends, and the authorities for that matter, have to go on. So as ominous as that may seem, we do know that, obviously, Oog made it back to his apartment because that's where the quote-unquote murder took place. And I use the quotations there, Chris, because uh, there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not this was a murder or this was a suicide. And we're going to unravel all that in just a bit. So, as I said, Oog did make it back to his apartment roughly around, I believe it's noted to be around 2.20 a.m. or maybe around 2.30, but he was there, and from everything that the investigators have been able to collect, that Oog, upon his return to his apartment, made himself something to eat and began surfing around on the internet (laughs) on, what else, dating websites. So it seems that Oog did indeed have a one-track mind, and I bring that up because for those that speculate that this may have been a suicide, to me, that seems like that's just Oog's normal routine. He got home after a night with his friends, he's drunk, made something to eat, and he's searching on the internet to try to uh, hopefully hook up with someone. So nothing really seems to be out of the ordinary here. Right, and as you mentioned before, Niels Arama, who... who is his co-worker at leapfrog you know they made that plan to, to do something the following morning i mean this is not the way a person who's thinking about committing suicide would act sometimes i suppose if somebody was really holding on to this thought for a long time they may have planned it out so that no one comes looking for them or expecting anything but this was not the case here to deem this a suicide is, is a big stretch yeah and we're gonna come to find out that that is something that really bothers oog's family, and friends to this day. So nothing at all is making sense. 
the friend that you mentioned, Neil, that's the friend that Oog had plans with to go riding the motorcycle the following day on June 2nd, that Saturday, the day that Oog was found dead inside of his apartment. The fact that this happened on a weekend adds to the mystery of this case because we find out that Neil attempted to call Oog that following day. He's like, where the hell are you? I thought we were going to go riding today. You're missing out on a great day. Oog never responded. It wasn't until Monday, June 4th, that Oog didn't show up for work. And that's what really rang the alarm bells. So Neil heads over there after work. And as he's walking up to the apartment on Linden Street, he sees the police tape and all the police, fire, and paramedic activity outside of Oog's apartment. And that's when his friend Neil knew that something very horrific happened. Just imagine someone that you were just speaking with and had plans to hang out with who you see at work every day. And then you got to show up over there and see why you haven't been answering your phone. And you just see blood and yellow tape outside their apartment. So you can imagine a devastation that Oog's friend is going through at the moment. But as we said before, nothing is as it seems in this case. As the investigation takes place, things only get more and more bizarre. So, Chris, let's analyze the crime scene here. And I touched on it a little bit in the beginning of the show. We can kind of maybe surmise why the authorities at the time, the San Francisco Police Department, may have thought that this was indeed a suicide. The SFPD deals with a lot of criticism pertaining to this case. And uh, we're going to find out why. But, uh, you know, I'm not passing judgment on anyone. So uh, let's see what we got here, Chris. Just on the facts that we know and what we've, you know, kind of shared with you on how uh, the situation was inside his apartment, outside the apartment, you mentioned the three stab wounds that occurred. Right off the bat, when you're thinking suicide, there's pretty standard ways that people commit suicide. I'm not saying that that covers all ways that people would commit suicide, but would you think that somebody would stab themselves three times? One of those stab wounds, which was the pretty much the, the death blow, was a vertical stab wound through the neck. I think it hit an artery and caught his lung. Super unusual way to take your own life. Whatever, you're, you're thinking of all possibilities here. But for that to be the first thought was kind of why there was a lot of heat brought down on them. Because the people are thinking, how in the hell can you think that this was not a murder? The police department basically says, well, we've got no footage of anyone on the cameras being in around the apartment. We have the silence. There was no real apparent noise outside of around the time. And then, um, like you mentioned, the locked doors. There's a few things there that make it seem to the authorities that he could have done it to himself, despite the wounds. Put that aside, that's kind of where they were heading. Still a stretch. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, it's just such a violent way to uh, commit suicide. The stab wound to the neck, the chest, and the abdomen. The, the very disconcerting thing here, and uh, I think where the police gain a lot of the criticism that you know, maybe warranted in this situation, is the fact that the knife that was used to stab Oog was nowhere to be found inside the apartment. Now, there was some thought that maybe he washed the knife after he stabbed himself because they found two separate knives in the apartment that kind of fit the profile 
of the stab wounds. But if you're committing suicide and you're in a situation where you're actually stabbing yourself in the neck and striking an artery, I think the last thing on your mind that you're going to do is like, you know, I, I better go wash this knife. I think they said that he would have had only a couple minutes before he bled out. You're just not going to have time to do that. Yeah, not at all. Now, they also mentioned that there were no signs of a struggle. Or was there? Because some of the crime scene photos show a TV overturned, blood prints on a wall that we had mentioned, and under Oog's body, they found his watch, and the watch appeared to be ripped off of his wrist. Call me crazy, but an overturned TV, the watch being ripped off, that kind of sounds like a, a bit of a struggle, whether there be uh, tons of noise involved or not, because obviously if he's stabbed at this point and stabbed in the neck, he's most likely not going to be able to scream. But we should note that the next door neighbors said that they did hear a loud thud and a door opening and shutting at around 2.40 a.m., maybe closer to 3. So there was some kind of noise or disturbance going on, but that could have just been Oog going outside the apartment momentarily, and maybe he answered the door for someone or went out for our smoke, and that's when the attack took place, if we're looking at it from the angle that this would most likely be a murder. And, and that's the thing, too. You know, at this point... We're, we're going to, I think, assume here that this was a murder. But the fact that inside the apartment, there was nothing else. There was no other evidence that another person was there. Like you said, if this happened outside the apartment, there was either a knock on the door, a phone call, something to lure him out of the apartment. If the stabs happened then, maybe he runs in the house, locks the door behind him. And maybe he just doesn't have enough time to do anything else and just bleeds out and dies. But there's no evidence at all that somebody else other than Uwe was in that apartment at any time. Yeah, and that's what makes it so puzzling. Because you would think if it was indeed a robbery, obviously something would be missing. Maybe his wallet, the watch that was off his wrists, anything of that nature, anything of value. But the San Francisco police could not find any concrete evidence of another person being inside that apartment that evening. So I think what you're saying combined with what the neighbor's saying, that they heard the door opening and closing and the thud, that makes a lot of sense in my eyes. So one of the things that also pissed off a lot of the people that knew Oog with regards to this investigation is the fact that the police said that, you know, maybe he did this and then threw the knife <laughs> out the window. Well, okay, but if this took place at 2.30 in the morning or 3 in the morning and you get there at 8, I don't think the knife is going to make it very far. It's probably still going to be laying there. I mean, who's going to walk past and pick up a bloody knife? You know, there, there's actually an interesting thing here because Dr. Azar uh, is the person who ends up doing this autopsy. And uh, he says that the real notion of suicide started with Melissa Nix. This was Oog's ex-girlfriend who at the time was living on the East Coast. When she heard about Ook's death, she immediately came over and started doing an investigation of her own, asking questions. Melissa was very much involved in this case. And so Dr. Azar says, the real notion of a suicide started with Melissa Nix. He says, I know that specifically, very specifically, it came out of my conversation with Miss Nix. She was telling him that he was into Japanese culture, or he watched a lot of samurai movies, she says. 
Can I ask you one thing? Was this a harakiri? Did he go into his stomach? She asks him that, according to Izzard, the person that allegedly knew him the most said literally, would not be surprised if the investigation concluded he had done this to himself. She literally says that. So that is pretty unique because she's the one that's fighting against this whole suicide thing. Yes, that's certainly um, bizarre and kind of throws a wrench into the whole thing. I saw an interview with her on one of these TV shows. I think it was 48 Hours, you know, and she said that the detective's questions were somewhat leading. They were kind of leading her in that direction. And she didn't really mean to allude to the fact that she thought Oog may have been suicidal. So it's tough to really know who to believe. And if you want to go back to how he was killed and that whole theory behind, and you hear this in a lot of cases, if there's no forced entry, that means that the person likely knew the assailant, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's one theory anyway. I mean, there could have been something else that he could have been outside, someone could have been waiting for him. But if somebody willingly goes outside, that's probably because they knew the person that was out there. I do find or at least it does bring up the, th the thought in my head that this person that attacked him could have been somebody he knew or somebody he talked to maybe on one of his dating sites. Well, that's very interesting, Chris, because uh, a couple of his friends said that Oog was such a ladies' man and so enamored with females that he didn't really give a shit if he was chasing a woman that had a boyfriend or even a husband or even you know a girlfriend or wife of one of his friends. He just didn't care. If you dance with the devil like that, you could find yourself mixed up in a very dangerous little game. With as many people, with him being so active in the dating world, you're just increasing your odds. And like you said, he just did not care who, what, when. You're just increasing your odds of, of running into the wrong person. We're looking at this as if it might be a scorned lover or a jealous spouse of one of these women. We don't know. But... Perhaps it was another woman that he dated. She saw him out at the underground SF club talking to another woman, and she got insanely jealous. Or maybe, as we had said earlier, Oog was on a dating website once he arrived home. So maybe he found someone that was willing to come over and hook up with him, but it was a setup. Because that shit happens all the time, too. Exactly right. And I think that could have been a possibility because, like, um, you know, those those apps or whatever where you you know you can meet up with somebody who's local to you or whatever swipe right <laughs> exactly right swipe right oh okay we, we can get it <laughs> i'm sorry chris continue and it could have been like you said it's simply that it could have been a number of things but i would not doubt for one second that this was related to his dating life because to me, if this guy's going outside and getting stabbed, it's because he was opening the door for somebody he was expecting. And remember, too, his friend said that he was drunk. That lowers your inhibitions and it, it takes away your ability to think rationally. So maybe he wasn't as cautious as he normally would be if he was uh, sober. But our story does not end here, Chris, because Oog's dad, Francois de la Plaza, wasn't having it with the SFPD's uh, official report because I think at this point they were saying that the cause of death was undetermined they couldn't really tell if it was a suicide or a homicide but for the most part I believe that they were indeed treating it as a homicide with the thought that it could have been a suicide so uh, 
Francois was not having it. He contacts the French authorities because remember, Oog was uh, a French citizen as well. They come over and do an investigation. I think it lasted upwards of nine months to a year. They release their investigation and it was roughly 2,000 pages of investigative work that the, the French authorities put in here. And they ruled that this was 100% a homicide. So that kind of uh, gives a little more clarity as to what the French authorities are thinking, more so than the murky waters that uh, the San Francisco Police Department are swimming in, you know, saying it could be this or it could be that. That's what makes this story so crazy, because at this point in time, I mean, this happened in 2007, and here we are in 2022, None of us really know. I mean, yeah, the French authorities can come and say that they 100% believe that this is indeed a homicide. But uh, as uh, Dr. Azar said, maybe he did do this to himself. We just don't know. So they're not specifically saying, oh, no, it's not a homicide. They're looking at it, maybe trying to keep an open mind and keep all avenues open as you know the investigation continues to this day. And Oog's family and friends are still looking for answers. And I believe since 2009, Oog's father has offered a $100,000 reward to anyone that can provide any information on what may have happened to Oog that night. I feel so terrible for them. I mean, just the desperation. And I, I actually read that they didn't even get a call from the authorities that Oog died until two days after his death because they were in France and this happened in the United States. But but still, I mean, I, I would think that that would have to be of the utmost urgency to get in touch with the parents because he was their only child. You know, a lot of the cases that we've done here where there's no answers and you don't get closure. And I think that's just the hardest part about this whole situation here is because you have people still thinking that it could be a suicide. And meanwhile, it's what looks like a clear-cut murder and you just get the feeling that no one's doing their job and, you know, it's just you're just kind of really helpless. Yeah, it's absolutely devastating to all those involved. But that's what adds to the lore of, of these locked room mysteries, you know. I mean, how could this have happened? There's just so many more questions than answers in this case. But before we wrap it up for the night, Chris, uh, let me ask you, what do you think happened to Oog? I, I believe 100% that he was murdered and, and I will... Uh quote the private investigator John Murphy that was actually hired I think eight days after his death by his father Francois de la Plaza he says that he knows that neighborhood and he said after 2 a.m. you have the night people you have drug dealers pimps hoes it's not a safe place to be <laughs> yeah I mean you know as they say nothing good happens after midnight but you know, uh, as I'm aging Chris nothing good happens after I don't know 7 p.m. <laughs> but uh, th th this uh, private investigator, he he's right. You know, he's talking about the, that neighborhood in 2007. And it definitely did have a lot of shady characters roaming around, you know, whether it be drugs, prostitution, whatnot. But, you know, it wasn't the safest of areas. And especially at 2 a.m., you got uh, a young guy walking by himself. He's inebriated. And it, it could be just a situation where uh, it was a crime of opportunity and they followed him to where he lived and they wanted to carry out a crime for their own sick reasons. Who knows? I think 100% he was murdered and I think he either knew or was expecting the murderer. If he was followed, 
or if there was somebody on his tail, there was no urgency for him to get home because they know that he arrived home safely, had a bite to eat, and used his laptop while he was checking on dating um, and sex websites, as they say. He got home not thinking that there was any issues in the world. There was no sense of urgency. There was no fear of anything happening at this point. He was comfortable in his atmosphere doing what he normally does and something lured him outside. And, and I don't think he was just happening to go outside to maybe have a cigarette or something, whatever. That would be too coincidental. So something lured him outside and I think it was somebody that he was expecting or somebody that he knew. Very astute observations, Chris. What says... Um, okay. You. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Chris, uh, <laughs> boy, oh boy, uh, you've certainly changed since you were nuptials there, bud. <laughs> uh, I think you're rubbing off on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's a very good thing either. But, uh, Chris, uh, in answer to your question, uh, I'm in agreement with you. I don't think there's any way that this is a suicide, especially... The fact that there's no weapon found, get the hell out of here. There's no way this kid washed the knife after he stabbed himself. It's just, that's not happening. Uh, I'm of the belief that maybe he found someone that night online that was supposed to meet him, or he found someone at the club or met someone on his way home, and he said, hey, I'll meet you at your apartment in like a half hour or so, you know, answer the door, be ready. And it could have been something as simple as that. And alternately, if, if that wasn't the case, I think someone probably just followed Oog home so that he was inebriated, maybe he was stumbling, so that he was an easy target. And for whatever reason, you know, they broke into his place or stabbed him outside. And he, as you said, got back inside his apartment and locked the door to stop them from coming after him any further. But maybe at that point in time, he just did not have any energy left to attempt to make a call to uh, 911. But I definitely think that this was either a crime of vengeance or a crime of opportunity. I do not believe that Oog, in any way, shape, or form, killed himself. But that's it, Chris. That is the sad story of Oog de la Plaza. Very wild. This was a a pretty crazy one. Let's just hope... uh, One day they do indeed solve this crime. So, bud, I'm starting to get a little creeped out here. It is dark and windy outside the BTCRF. People can see in, but I cannot see out. So, uh, (laughs) with that said, let's give the rundown and we can get the hell out of here for the night. Chris, I think I see a face outside the uh, window here. I gotta get the hell out of here. You want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com. If you'd like to become one of our lovely patrons, please do so by clicking on the link in the show notes. If you want to get in touch with us on social media, we're uh, the Between the Cracks podcast on Facebook and <laughs> Between the Cracks podcast on Instagram. If it's of the utmost urgency, please go dig in between Chris's cracks and you will find all the answers you need there. So None that you're going to want. <laughs> without any further ado... Chris, what do you say we wish the fine, fine people out in podcast land the fondest? Oh, a farewell.